All right, good morning. Thank you, worship team. That, that's a, a great reminder to us, that last song about breakthrough and about continuing to uh, trust the Lord in a dark situation or a difficult need. Uh, maybe you've got something you've been praying about, praying for for a long time. Uh, keep trusting the Lord and looking to Him. That's, that's uh, all I could think about, that the Lord is good. You know, one of the major news stories uh, this week, maybe for two weeks, I can't remember because they say the same thing on the news every night, was uh, this FBI raid of uh, former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate um, trying to seize some documents that they say uh, were classified and inappropriate for him to have. Uh, of course, some have been saying that this was been, has been orchestrated uh, by Trump opponents to keep him from the 2024 election, um, while others are just asking the simple, basic question, well, did he do something wrong? Is he guilty of committing a serious crime? We're continuing today in our study of the passion narrative that we began last week. And you'll remember we defined uh, passion uh, or passion narrative as the sufferings of Jesus, which we looked at last week encompass his um, uh, being desolate and, and alone in the garden. And today we continue as we look at the bitter suffering that he faces as he is arrested, betrayed, and tried in the courts of men. Today our passage is in Mark 14 and in 15, we'll be in both of those. We see a similar drama as last week as we look into the continuing saga of the Passion narrative. You know, some find it unthinkable that a U.S. president, even a former U.S. president, uh, that their home would be raided, that they could be subject to uh, subpoenas and raids and things like that, and even the possibility of being prosecuted as a criminal or someone guilty of a crime. And I was watching uh, as the news was talking about this, and a reporter asked, I think it was the Attorney General, I'm not positive about that, and said, but if this is true, is it possible that a former U.S. president could be tried as a criminal. And the person just basically said this, let me reiterate, no one is above the law. No one is above the law. <clears throat> and as we approach this passage today, maybe that's a good thing for us to think about, that every one of us is under the law. Every one of us more importantly than the U.S. law, every one of us are accountable, is accountable to God. We will stand before the Lord and give account for our lives. And so even as former presidents are accountable to the law, no one is above the law, we see something much more shocking today in our passage. We see the Son of God, Jesus accused by men and brought to trial, standing in judgment before men. The title of today's message is The Son of God on Trial. We left off last week thinking about and, and reading and considering Jesus praying there in the garden all alone as the bitter cup of anguish that the Lord brings before his lips that is to stand in our place to take on the wrath of God for man's sin. That cup begins to touch the lips of Jesus, and he's suffering. Immediately after that, Jesus gets up. His disciples are 
you know, still sleeping, and he kicks them and wakes them up. And then they see lights coming towards them. There is a mob, armed mob, with swords and with clubs coming towards Jesus. And Judas, one of the disciples, is a part of that mob. Along with that mob are soldiers. We're not exactly sure. Probably Roman soldiers mixed with some of the uh, temple soldiers. There are the priests, the scribes, the Jewish elders. And they come and Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss. And he betrays Jesus. And so they take and arrest Jesus. Now, this is a, a, a... Uh, perilous situation and I think that we need to see even though Jesus remains very calm in the midst of it all he knows who's in control he knows what he must face and he's very calm his disciples are scrambling Peter cuts off uh, the ear of one of the the guards or people that come in this mob and it says that uh, as they come the disciples then scatter and one of them is grabbed and his clothes are pulled off and he flees naked. And all of that is meant to help us understand this situation is serious and fearful. And Jesus is arrested. And we're going to pick up in Mark 14 and look at verses 53 through 65. And I want us in reading these things to consider the irony of God's son being arrested and standing trial before men. Mark 14 Verses 53 through 65. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard this uh, him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Consider the irony of the Son of God, of God himself, standing trial and arrested by men. The biblical account of the story of this world, of the heavens and the earth, of our life, of human history, and of us as individuals is this, that God has always existed. And three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God created the heavens and the earth and mankind. He created us. We are his creatures. Humankind, given life. The privilege of life. And the authority, the responsibility to serve God, to walk with God, and to be his stewards, his servants, his image bearers, 
here in this world in our short lives. Humanity rejected God's authority and rebelled against God. They were sent out from Eden in that special place where they walked face to face with God. East of Eden, though they, the first couple continues on with the creation mandate, though they're not serving God, they're in sin. They continue to fill the earth to try to subdue it, though racked with the curse of sin. And generations since then have continued on in the same path. Generations come and they die, they go, and the next generation is raised up over and over it goes. Kingdoms and powers, wars and all kinds of things continue. Nations rise and fall. The cycle goes on and on. But at some point, God set out to save a people, to create a people and a nation, a people for his own possession who would serve him as king faithfully and would love him. And he would do special things in their midst. Of course, that is Israel, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob. But this nation, too, was inconsistent in their following of God. And they rebelled many times against God's ways. But the Bible says this, that in the fullness of time, God sent his eternal son. God sent his son, Jesus, in the fullness of time. That's an interesting phrase that the Bible uses. And so there was something unique about the time in which Jesus came, a unique spot and moment in history that was pivotal. And that is the time that God chose to send his son to the world. It was during the time of the reign of the Roman Empire. There was a time called the Pax Romana, that is the peace of Rome, where really the Roman Empire had this far-reaching rule. And they had brought about a relative peace. People were able to come and go. They would let nations kind of have a little bit of governance, governance, though they would be over those local nations. And so that's the time in which we find Jesus living. That's the time we read about in Israel and Jerusalem in the time that Jesus lived. That specific time of the rule of Rome in the time that Jesus came was also a time where the Jewish nation was in some ways flourishing. It was the time of the second temple where Herod had set about to expand the temple, this glorious rebuilding of the temple. And so worship was back there at the temple. And so the Jews in some ways were thriving. There was a common language among almost all of the people of the civilized world. They spoke Greek. They were able to communicate. People of different nations. There was travel. People were mobile. It was a unique time where the East and the West came together and crossed over a melding or a blending of civilizations. It was a pivotal time. It was a, a transitional time from the ancient cultures to the modern cultures that really still impact and laid the foundations of what we are today as Americans, as America and many of the European nations And what did God's chosen people do when God sent his son in the fullness of time? Sent this promised Messiah. Here's what they did. They rejected him. They arrested him. They put him on trial. They condemned him. And they beat him. The Jews put God on trial. The Romans put God on trial. And let me say this to you. In a million ways, Humanity has done this before, then, and ever since then. In a million ways, humanity puts God on trial. This is the story of humanity and of our lives. Not just a sliver in time, this moment where Jesus was arrested and tried. No, no, no. Humanity is continually and always putting God 
on trial. From the garden to the global societies of today, humans try and convict God. They reject God. In our day, we've kicked God out of the schools. We talk about, you know, the Bible is not welcome there, though actually uh, I'm finding out that uh, uh, schools are able to teach the Bible, not as religion, but as literature, as a book. We talk about how the schools have uh, kicked prayer out of school. But actually, you can pray anywhere you want to pray. Maybe the more concerning thing is not that schools have kicked prayer out, but that Christians do not pray in their own homes. We kick God out of places, public schools, public spheres, kick him out of our home, out of our sex lives, out of our social lives. Good grief. We claim to be Christians and, and we worship and we're supposed to come together on the Lord's Day. But quite honestly, even so-called Christians kick the Lord out of the sacred days, his day, and barely make time for him very often. Yes, the wicked, wicked irony is that we humans reject God. We say that his ways are, are old, they're old-fashioned, they apply to everyone else but me. They're simple-minded, they're parochial, they're conservative. We put God on trial. We question his ways and his laws and his testimonies. So isn't it ironic now that we see in flesh and blood the Son of God on trial during Passion Week, standing accused in the hot seat before men. Next, I want us to consider the clarity of Jesus' testimony as he stood at his trials. Yes, trials. Really, there are, some people count as many as six different trials in the Passion narrative. I would say this. There are two or three main aspects of Jesus being tried during Passion Week. The first is the Jewish proceedings. That is, he was tried by the religious leaders of the Jews then there were the secular proceedings, that is, the Romans. The secular government tried Jesus. But third, I would say the crowds, the common people, put Jesus on trial in some ways. You know, some people say, well, gosh, they made a mistake. They just didn't understand who Jesus was. It was not clear to them that he was this eternal son of God who had come to save some non-Christians look in and they read uh, the Gospels and they, and they look and they're, they're critically assessing and they say, you know, Jesus never claimed to actually be God. That's what some would say. And what I want to show you is the clarity of Jesus' testimony for all to see during his trials. In verse 61 that we already read, the Jews, the chief priests, the high priests, they ask the question, and he's being largely silent. But they ask the question, point blank, are you the Messiah? That is, the anointed one who God would send. Are you the son of the blessed one? They ask the question. Look down in verse 61. Now, Jesus is not dignifying everything that's brought against him. He's being silent. And at that point, he says this, I am. It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? He doesn't say, well, could you define what you mean by the blessed one? He says, I am. Maybe even there's a hint of the divine name there, I am. But he says something more. He says, I am and, now keep in mind he's being 
grilled by Old Testament scholars, people that probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. They knew the scriptures very well. They knew the messianic prophecies. They knew the law. They knew these things. And Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now you go, I'm not really sure what that means at all. Well, it's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. It's not a verbatim quote, but it is very close. Jesus is identifying with an Old Testament vision, a prophecy of things to come that they would have understand quite well. The Son of Man in Daniel's heavenly vision. It's not, you know, we as Christians today, we hear that, that talk about, well, and you'll see him coming with the clouds of heaven, and we immediately think about the second coming of Jesus. His coming back that he talked about later in the Gospels. But that's not what it's talking about. If you go back and read Daniel chapter 7 and read that vision, it's not talking about a return in the clouds to earth that they will see. What it refers to is the Son of Man ascending to the very throne, the highest place. The throne of the Ancient of Days is the exact verbiage there. You can write down that reference. You've probably already got it in your study Bible, Daniel chapter 7. It's a reference. This Son of Man is going to ascend to the very throne of God, and He's going to receive glory and power and dominion and an eternal kingship or kingdom and throne. It is basically saying this Son of Man is going to rule and reign as God, with God, the Ancient of Days. It is a claim to divinity. It is a claim that Jesus makes to be the fulfillment of the Messiah. And he says that, that I am. I'm going to go and rule and reign at the very right hand of God. And so they tear their robes. And they're outraged that a man would claim to be God, but... They never asked the question, could he actually be this? Could we maybe not have understood fully this messianic prophecy? They never asked that. They just say, you can't be, you're not. And they call him a blasphemer, speaking against God, and they condemn him to death. But Jesus does make a very clear and pointed identification of himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God, who rules and reigns with God. And so they condemn him to death, to death. They slap him around. They beat on him a little bit, get their kicks and their jabs in, and they send him to the Roman ruler of that providence or that area, and that is a man named Pilate, the Roman governor. Let's pick up in chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, as we see the second part of Jesus' trial as he stands before Rome, the secular government, and before Pilate. Early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. The Roman government is actually an astounding thing to study. Roman law developed back as early as 700 B.C. And 
went on to 1400 AD for over 2,000 years. Roman law developed. It was very complicated, very complete, certainly flawed in many ways as we see here. But listen to this. Roman law is the very foundation of jurisprudence and civil law. It is the foundational piece on which we, as Americans and much of Europe, are still governed today. It's not exactly the same, but it laid a foundation. It was very thorough. The founding fathers looked into that, but also looked into the uh, Judeo-Christian laws and things and brought together what we now know as our law, or at least the foundations of it. And so Jesus actually goes and stands trial before what would ostensibly be the most perfect legal system as he comes before Pilate. And Pilate simply says and asks him the clear question. Now listen to this. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Caesar and all of his minions did not like anybody claiming kingship. That's a bold question. Are you the king of of the Jews. And again, I would say to you, it's pretty clear Jesus' response. He doesn't veil it. He doesn't plead the fifth. It is as you say. Now, that's shocking. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, no. Caesar is king. Herod is king. I'm not a king. He says, it is exactly as you say. I am the king of the Jews. Again, He's claiming the royal throne of David, the rightful king of the Jews. Honestly, the rightful king of all the world is what Jesus is. The Jews are piling on the accusations, but Jesus only answers that one question. Pilate's amazed that he won't speak to these other things. And I think Jesus and I think we are meant to see this clearly. He wants us to know this. I am the Jewish Messiah and I am the king. And he stood there before these two courts and clearly revealed his identity as the divine Jewish Messiah and King. The last thing I want us to look at together is, I want us to con- is uh, verses 6 through 15 in chapter 15. I want us to consider the fate of Jesus owing to the crowds of citizens there. This is the third part, if you will, of his trial. Let's pick up in uh, verse 6. Now at the feast, he, that's Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner, whom they, the crowd, requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over partly, or because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask, him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Something the Gospels makes very clear. Jesus was blameless. 
They piled all kinds of false accusations. They took words that he had said and taught, twisted them and contorted him, them, and made all kinds of accusations. But Jesus stood before men and was tried and found guilty, though he was sinless and blameless. Even Pilate said, this guy has done nothing deserving of death. He's done no evil. What evil has he done? The answer is none. He is the sinless, spotless, perfect lamb of God. Pilate thinks, I got a way out of this mess. You know, these Jewish leaders want him killed. Surely the crowds will release him. I'm going to invoke this tradition. I'm going to release a prisoner. And he brings up probably the most vile, wicked man that he can think of, a man named Barabbas, who was a murderer, a thief, an insurrectionist. And he sets them side by side. And he tells this crowd, choose one for me to release. Choose one who will die. And the crowd, stirred up by the Jewish leaders, begin to say, give us Barabbas. See, the world will choose wickedness almost every time. And here is this wicked man, Barabbas. And that's who they say should be let free. Well, what should we do with this Jesus? Kill him. Crucify him. You see, Pilate had the authority to do what the Jews couldn't. He could carry out a death sentence of crucifixion. That's why they brought Jesus to them, to, to Pilate. And the crowd puts Jesus on trial and says, kill him, crucify him. You know, from a merely human standpoint, the trial, the arrest, the suffering, the mistrial, this injustice committed at the hands of secular and religious, East and West, ancient and modern, the crowds, the dignitaries, every one of them were a part of this injustice. In many ways, it's one of the most heinous crimes ever perpetrated. But it was actually God's plan. You know, there's something here in the midst of this drama that God is doing that we must see. All four Gospels tell this story about Barabbas, and Jesus taking the punishment that he deserved. And Barabbas getting the freedom that Jesus actually deserved. You know, it's amazing. Not even all four Gospels give all 12 names of the disciples. One of the Gospels doesn't tell the name of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. There are pieces that are true, but they're omitted. But all four talk about this criminal going free. And this perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God dying and being charged as guilty. And here is the word that you should understand. This is a key word if you would understand salvation and the ministry of Jesus and what he did in Passion Week. And here's the word. You ready? Here's your word. Substitution. Substitution. That the Son of God took our place. He died. He was tried for us. He was our substitute. 
And there are a lot of fancy theological words and phrases and ideas that we could throw around, but you should get this today. Jesus is intended to be your substitute. To die the death that you and I deserve. Because we're all guilty before God. We have all fallen short and sinned against God. He stood in our place. He stood in your place. He's your substitute. Listen to this. God stood trial and suffered a guilty verdict in the courts of men so that men would not have to stand condemned one day in the courtroom of God. He stood condemned before men so that we would not stand condemned in the perfect, just courts of God. Isaiah 53, I quoted a verse from it last week. I'll do it again. I think it is one of the most beautiful and poetic and and picturesque passages that speak about the ministry of Jesus in Passion Week. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and a sheep silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Do you see how the gospel story here tells that Jesus largely stood silent as those who would shear him and harm him and kill him, accused him. Save, basically, Jesus said some things during the trial, but primarily he just wanted them to understand who he was. Who it was that stood before the shearers. Interesting picture. Shearing of a sheep. Why would you shear a sheep? Well, you either shear a sheep because their old wool is nasty and it needs to get off of there, you know, or you shear a sheep because you want the wool to what? Make coverings. For others. And Jesus, our substitute, stood trial before men that we might not stand condemned before God to cover us, to cover our iniquities and our sins. He didn't mouth off, he didn't, in a panic, plead the fifth, call his lawyers, or anything like that. He simply stood and took what we deserve. And today I want to say to you this, there is an acquittal, there is a forgiveness, there is a freedom that you are offered by God because of what Jesus did in that week. And it's for those who look to Jesus by faith as their substitute. But you know what that means? That we first of all have to admit that we're guilty before God. We need to understand that we will give an account for our lives before God Almighty who created us. And then we need to see God as a gracious, merciful forgiver who is perfectly just. But he's also perfectly merciful. And in the trial and the cross of Jesus, 
God is exacting justice for all men's sins, those forgiven beforehand and those who would come after for all who look to Jesus and claim him as their substitute. So we admit our sins. We confess that we are guilty before God and we do the only thing that actually works. We look to Jesus by faith and accept the freedom that he offers. And we, like Barabbas, can go free because he was punished for us. Would you bow with me today? Let's just take a moment with our eyes closed and we begin to focus on what all of this means. I would invite you as the Lord is stirring your heart with the eyes of your heart to see to see that we're all guilty and we are not above the law. To admit in your heart of hearts that you are a sinner, that you've sinned against God, that I have, that we all have. Maybe to begin to recognize those patterns and those things that you've done and how hurtful they are and how rebellious they are in the sight of God. But even as you admit those and you see and hear and feel the weight of the condemnation of those sins piling up on your court docket, and on the written charges against you. That you would see walking into the courtroom of heaven and of earth. And saying, I will stand with him and her. I will stand for them. I will pay what they owe. Put the justice that is due on me. And that person is Jesus your advocate, the one who stands as your substitute, dying in your place that you might have life. Do you see the love and the care and the bigness and the goodness and the love of God who would do that for you and for me? Little old us and every person who would look to him. Would you look to that Jesus? Tell him that you are confessing and admitting that you're a sinner and that you want to be saved by his grace, by his goodness, by his standing in your place. Just tell him that and believe on him. Folks, this is the story of heaven and earth. This is the reality of every one of us. Father, today we are thankful that Jesus endured what we deserved. That as we see him accused and beaten and harmed and shamed and left alone, that we would feel some of the weight of what sin deserves and that we would look to you and believe on you and your mercy and your grace for us today. Lord, in our hearts, would you help us to feel and to see and to know afresh and anew the greatness 
of the freedom that's in Christ. To be filled up with joy and thankfulness and gratitude. Knowing that our salvation is not of works. It's not anything that we have done to deserve it. Quite the contrary. That we deserve death. But by your goodness, by your mercy, we live and have freedom for eternity. Lord, help us to see what it is to trust Jesus and become a citizen of heaven and to put our hopes there afresh and anew today. Work in our hearts, Lord. Break down the barriers, the hardness of heart, the seared consciences today. Do something right here, right now, in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, to save and to bring new life by your Spirit as they trust by faith. Restore to us, who've been following you for years, the joy of our salvation as we look into the story of the passion and the suffering of Jesus for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.